Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and we're going to be diving into the wonderful world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over a series of interviews, we're here to learn about how early-stage B2C startups raise money and look into the inner workings of venture capital. If you're interested in consumer-facing startups, have your own B2C startup, or interested in venture capital, you've come to the right place. Our guest today is Jay Kapoor. Jay is a principal at Launch Capital, an early and seed stage investment firm that has invested in the likes of Spotify, Snapchat, and Uplift. He has years of experience investing in consumer, and I'm very excited for this one. So without further ado, here's Jay. Jay, thanks so much for coming on. It's absolute pleasure to have you. So tell me a little bit about how you got started in early stage investing. Yeah, sure. And thank you so much for, for having me, Mike. Exciting to uh, talk to you a little bit about a bunch of things around uh, around consumer and investing. So so being at Carnegie Mellon, where I, where I went uh, to do my undergrad, I think tech and innovation was always a, a big part of uh, you know my my life uh, just you know being in school and being around everything that was happening on campus, but in early stage investing didn't really uh, you know become a part of my career until a little bit later on. I actually spent the first five years of my career in uh, the sports, media, and entertainment world. Uh, so started off out of college uh, in investment banking, still sort of figuring out what I wanted to do. Ended up covering uh, some media and entertainment names and and really fell in love with it. While most of my colleagues were going on to do private equity out of investment banking. I had a good sense that I, I wanted to go work uh, on an operating role within media and entertainment. So found a role at the National Football League. And uh, at the time, uh, you know, they were hiring, but they hired primarily out of, you know, two banks. UBS was not one of them. Uh, and they hired out of two colleges. Uh, Carnegie Mellon was not one of them. So I, I realized that it was going to take a little bit of moxie and a little bit of persistence uh, to get in front of the right people for this role. Uh, and so the, the story I like to tell is that I basically found the HR emails of, of every person that worked uh, in, you know, at the NFL. And I sent them my resume at 9.30 every Monday morning for seven straight weeks. Uh, diff- a different person. But, uh, but I think I hit a couple people multiple times. And about seven weeks in, I think an SVP finally reached out and he was like, hey, man, we got it. We hear you. We'll call you. A, a week later, I had an interview. About a month later, I had the job. And so I, I always like to tell, uh, you know, especially when, uh, you know, other alums reach out, they're recent graduates, they want to, you know, uh, ask me like, hey, what do I need to do if I want to break into this industry? Uh, my answer is always persistence, because that's where I've realized that, um, you know, you can't control the outcome all the time, but you can't control, uh, you know, how hard you run at it. And that persistence uh, has really been the thing that's carried with me, uh, you know, basically throughout my career. And uh, I had an amazing three seasons at the NFL. I got to work on a lot of our, you know, internal um, league strategy and working on some, you know, projects around strategy and finance. Uh, learned a lot about how leagues, teams, uh, you know, athletes operate and just understood what, what kind of feels like a black box world. I think it's starting to become covered more and more. But the business of sports, at least when I was going in, in 2012, was a little bit of a black box world and so learned a lot doing that. Um, and then, uh, you know, left the NFL to help start the sports practice at a firm called Mesa, uh, where we were uh, helping raise capital for uh, companies like FanDuel, uh, you know, help sell a company to Topgolf, uh, and really anything in and around uh, sports media and entertainment. Uh, we were later acquired. And that was around the time that it was a great time to be in New York if you were interested in tech and startups. So uh, around that 2013, 14 into 15, the, the cottage industry of startups in New York was really blossoming. 
And so you would start to see, uh, you know, founders at these events and they were super approachable because it was still sort of early days. And I found it very easy to be able to reach out to to folks and say, hey, I'm interested in this thing that you're working on. Uh, Can we get a coffee and talk about it? And just in that grassroots way, started to build my network in the startup world here in New York. Um, and I was, you know, this is one of the things that I love about early stage is that the people that you talk to that are, that are building these companies, they're so passionate about it. And if you've done your homework and you reach out with good questions and you're interested in what they're doing, they'll take the time out to talk to you. I think one of the first companies I reached out to, this is when like liquor delivery had just started coming up in New York in like 2013 or 14. I reached out to a company and I was like, hey, can we can we talk about what you're building? I think it's so interesting. And they took me out for drinks and they said, yeah, what do, what do you want to know? We'll tell you everything. Um, and you can just hear the passion in their voice. And so I think it was around that time that I realized, you know, no matter what I'm going to end up doing in my career, uh, I want to be working with these early stage founders and these super passionate people. Uh, and that ended up being, uh, I think, my 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 exit ramp onto early stage investing. Um, so I found a role with the folks at TechStars. I, I ended up leaving the investment bank post acquisition, um, and you know, found a, a freelance a freelance role with the folks at uh, at TechStars New York. Still so grateful uh, to Alex Escol, to KJ Singh, and, and Jill Canning for just giving me the opportunity to come work with them and learn from them, um, helping their startups in their accelerator cohort, and bringing my skill set in terms of capital raising and corporate strategy, and then learning from them on how to be a good investor, how to be a, you know, a good operator, a partner to these operators, um, and then tapping into this broader network of New York and tech. And... That's, uh, you know, really, that was my foray into early stage investing. Since then, uh, you know, around that time when I joined Techstars, I started writing. And I think that's been the other big, uh, you know, learning from my career coming into early stage investing is that I started putting these ideas and these theses I had into, uh, you know, persuasive essays and blog posts on, on different topics. Uh, one of those, uh, which was a, an essay I wrote called VC Funds Are the New Steakhouses, uh, talking about athletes investing in tech, uh, somehow found its way to somebody at Madison Square Garden. And they reached out and said, you know, hey, who are you and what are you doing and why are you writing about this? And uh, they were hiring at the time. So uh, ended up going to Madison Square Garden uh, after Techstars and helping to build the venture practice at, at MSG Ventures. You know, it turned out not to be exactly what I thought it was when I got there. And so when the opportunity uh, to join the folks here at Launch Capital uh, opened up at the beginning of last year, I jumped at it. And uh, to, to work with a team of, you know, former operators that had built companies, that had sold companies, that had, you know, been on boards, had been investing for, for you know, almost a decade, um, to learn from these folks, uh, I mean, I couldn't ask for a better place uh, for my education as an investor. And so that, uh, you know, is what really brought me to launch capital and, and really built uh, my interest in early stage investing. And as I think about, you know, the, I, I've been doing sort of early stage for about three years. I think about the next decade of my career. Um, these are the kind of people that I want to be working with. And these are the kind of uh, companies that I'm excited to invest in. That's awesome. I love that persistent story of you emailing HR every Monday. Yeah. You know, I, I found I found that SVP after I got the job and I, and I told him, I said, hey, man, I'm sorry that I blew up your inbox. And he was like, you know what, dude, don't be sorry. You wouldn't be here if you hadn't. And uh, and, and I think I've, I've always carried that that with me. So you've worked for a accelerator in corporate VC and now at, at your current position at Launch Capital uh, doing pre-seed and seed. Talk to me a little bit about the different lenses and the learnings that that, that have really helped you as an investor uh, with those quite unique experiences. Yeah, I think, you know, 
as I've developed my framework uh, for investing, and, and you know, this continues to to evolve. I think um, you know the biggest thing I've realized at the early stage, uh, and it's going to sound cliche, but it really is true. It all comes down to the founders, and it all comes down to the to the early team, and. At some at some level, right? Um, especially because we we dabble a little bit in pre seed. I mean, seed is our our bread and butter, uh, and that's where most of my investments have been. Uh, you don't have a ton of traction to go off of. Uh, the ideas are still evolving. You know, the the biggest thing I learned at TechStars, I think, early on was that the idea that these founders come into TechStars with uh, may not be the idea or the or the startup that they leave with. Um, they they will you know pivot or they'll evolve or whatever the right word for it is um, and to, to as an investor not be scared of that right because if the problem that they're going after if the market size that they're going after is still big there's a lot of different ways to to approach this problem and so uh, that was I think the first thing that I learned um, you know the other learning that I had at early stage around around team was that um, you know founder market fit is a real advantage. And so a lot of the investments that we do, and I'll explain what founder market fit is, you know, very quickly. It's really that you're working with founders that come from an industry and have some sort of unique insight that's going to help them win in what they're doing today. And that unique advantage, especially if it, if it can't be replicated, if, it, if you need all those years they've spent in that industry to be able to do what they're doing today, well, that is inherently a moat. And so when I look at the founders that I like to work with, really are you know technical founders that have a great understanding of their product where I can step in and say okay you know what you're doing on this but let me work with you on maybe go to market or let me work with you on, on how you hire and scale your team but you have such a unique advantage based on your background and your experience that there are maybe like 10 people in the world that can do this and you're gonna hire most of them and this is the kind of thing that, that that's exciting to me when I uh, when I start working with these founders. That if you if you lean on founder market fit, inherently you're starting off with an advantage. And then I think as I've evolved uh, my thinking on you know what I evaluate when I'm meeting a company, right? So let's start with team. We obviously lean into market size uh, and and want to make sure that that's something big and growing. And there's different ways to work in it. I think the other thing I, I also realized is. Um, the, the biggest challenge that these founders face early on is not being able to hire the right kind of talent to build their company. You can have a phenomenal idea, but if you can't sell people on being able to come and work with you and to build this thing with you, um, you know, I don't care how many hours you work, right? At the end of the day, we only have 24 hours in a day. And you got to find the people that are going to be, you know, just as passionate as you. They're going to bring great ideas to the table, especially early on, are going to be able to pinch hit and step into different roles that maybe they weren't hired for. Um, and then you as the you know, CEO, especially if you're a first time founder, or maybe you're somebody who's never actually managed a large team before, are now going to have to go very quickly from being the person who was writing the code or being the person that was selling the product to now teaching other people to have to do that. And so when I spend time with the founders that I'm meeting or I'm evaluating a company, I start to evaluate that a little bit too. How is this person as a manager? How is this person as somebody who can hire? How much hiring have they done? And if they haven't, that's okay. If that's something that I feel like we can work on together, if that's something that's coachable, then then you know that doesn't end up being a hurdle. But it does become important to me as I'm evaluating these companies because the the biggest thing that's going to hamper you early on is you know burning cash while you're not able to grow the the number of people you need on your team. I'd imagine when you're conducting due diligence and analyzing early early stage consumer facing businesses, um, 
how do you go about dealing with them and finding and trying to figure out if this founder, if that there is that founder market fit? Yeah, you know, in consumer, it's it's a little bit interesting, right? I think uh, as a as an investor, I, I look at both consumer and uh, you know enterprise and B two B deals. Uh, I think in consumer, that founder market fit can mean a lot of things. Uh, and so, you know, one example is one of our uh, investments in a company called Future Family. Um, you know, Claire, who founded the company, uh, used to work at Solar City, and she was underwriting solar panels. And Future Family is a company that underwrites loans to women that want IVF and fertility financing. Because that, if you look at the problem, uh, you know, used to cost maybe $50,000, is now coming down to costing $25,000. Sometimes uh, that whole IVF and, and fertility process can take multiple turns. And so you might have to, you know, end up paying a lot of money. I think Claire jokes that her daughter cost $100,000. And when you think about how do you make that accessible to a larger percent of the population, when she took her founder market fit, her experience of underwriting a completely different asset, but realizing that the people that she's marketing to, the way that she's building these risk models, the way that she's sourcing the, the capital to underwrite these loans, I mean, this is a consumer business selling to women and families all over the U.S., working with clinics that are going to provide this service. Her experience uh, in her past career was directly related to what she's building today, even if it wasn't from um, you know, a fertility or, 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 or a healthcare business. And so I think you know, those challenges come in when you can have too narrow of a definition of whether this founder's experience is relevant. I think the other, the other broad thing is... You know, people spend a lot of time thinking about market size. I spend most of my time thinking about problem size. And is this company solving a real problem? Because I lean in the camp, and I know that there's disagreement uh, in this, I lean in the camp that the best companies grow their markets. And so if the problem that you're solving is real, and the way we can assess that is look at the customers that you've talked to, uh, understand the research that you have, really prove that existing solutions are not solving this problem in a meaningful way. And then you can show me that by you becoming the platform that solves this problem, you can now start to solve all the other second order problems that come from this. If that problem size is real, and you can solve it for your customer, and maybe you have some early traction that proves that your customer loves the solution you're providing, okay, that gets me excited. I don't start to care as much about um, you know, the market size, if, you know, if, if the number is not in the billions, because we can start to spend time and, and, and really understand that the problem you're solving is real, the customers that have already used you love you, and they come back and they evangelize for you, and that over time, that's going to become a virtuous cycle that brings more and more customers into the business and grows the market size overall. So I think those are, those are probably common traps that investors fall into when evaluating consumer businesses that I try to you know, maybe keep an open mind about when I'm meeting these companies. Talk to a few uh, investors at the early stage that say, uh, in terms of TAM, founders will come in and will say that this opportunity is several trillions when they go back. And then when the investor goes back and do their, does their diligence, it's not as big as an opportunity uh, as a founder says. So how should founders approach TAM? I, look, I think it's a good question. Um, so for your audience, I mean, the reason that investors care so much about TAM is because they have to, to make sure that this company can grow to a size that is commensurate with returning the investment um, so that it's beneficial for the fund, right? So if uh, if you come into solving a really niche problem, you know, 
that's fine. You could probably have a really, really great business. It just might not be a great venture capital business. And that's, I think, the thing that founders maybe don't understand that much, that, it, that it's not personal. I don't think that this is not a good company. I just might not think that it's a, not a good company for venture capital right now. Um, now, what I will say how founders should think about TAM is, uh, and, and there's a really interesting article that I read recently about, it's called the TAM Onion. And it was looking at how, you know, TAM isn't just one circle, right? It's multi-layers, like maybe a couple concentric circles. And that center circle is the one, the problem you're solving right now. That is your directly addressable market. And then your answer can be, okay, if I capture enough of this directly addressable market, and that might be in the millions, right? But, but you have a clear line of sight, and with enough resources, you can, you can go after and you can own that. Then we'll look at the ring outside of that, which is, okay, that's a little bit tougher, and that's going to take a little time to do, and maybe we need to add some more features, or maybe we need to add you know, a, a different vertical, but we can go and we can solve that problem for that customer you know, in relatively near future. And then there's the TAM outside of that, and that's the, that's the big TAM. That's the billion-dollar TAM. And that's the one that's going to get an investor excited about being an investor in your company for you know, close to a decade. Because if you're a seed stage investor today, it might take six, seven, eight years to, to see significant return on that capital. You'll see markups, but you won't, you won't see that money coming back if that company's not going to exit. And so uh, the way I think, uh, you know, one is don't take TAM personally. Uh, if an investor comes back to you and says your TAM isn't big enough, uh, that doesn't mean that this won't be a multi-hundred million dollar business. It probably just means that it won't be a venture business for them. Um, now, now, you can find a way to prove them wrong. And the way to prove them wrong is by showing your, your TAM onion and showing what you can address and then where you're going to grow. So what are some of the major turnoffs when a startup pitches to you? I, you know, I don't think there's a ton. It, it really depends on a company-to-company basis. I, I don't think I see a ton of pitches where founders aren't prepared or don't totally understand their business. Um, I will say, you know, a, a turnoff is, again, really uh, not understanding the problem that they're solving. Uh, maybe, maybe the right way to phrase that is if a founder is in love with the solution before they're in love with the problem, that's a turnoff for me. So, so you really want to build this app. You really want to build this tool. But the customer problem is maybe best solved by doing something different, right? But that's not the thing that you want to do. Or maybe that thing is not really going to be a founder market fit for you. You know, prime example is you want to build a consumer app to solve, um, let's say, a, a problem in uh, healthcare. Uh, you know, helping people, you know, be fit and work out and whatever it is. But the, the tool that maybe you should solve is like creating software for dietitians. And you can still come at that problem the same way. The solution that you're going to be building is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I think when a founder is really married to the solution, not the problem, um, that's a little bit tough for me. I think uh, at later stages or, or maybe, you know, as a, as a company has started evolving and seeing some traction, uh, the other thing that I have a tough time with is when, a founder comes to me and says, uh, we have grown 100% organically to date. And now we want to raise venture capital so that we can go acquire customers. And I'm like, wait a minute. So you've never actually spent money to acquire customers and you want my money to go experiment? All right, thank you, next. Right? And so it's one of those of like, uh, I want to I want to see that you have, you know, played around with that cohort analysis. You've figured out what channels really work well for you to acquire customers. You've you've talked to those customers and understood their user behavior. And now the capital that we're putting in, 
Um, sure, there's definitely going to be experimentation. There's experimentation, you know, up through Series B as you're maybe opening new markets. It's not the experimentation that scares me. It's that the thought process behind it doesn't exist yet. And you want the capital to go do that without actually having done the legwork before. So, you know, again, it, it changes from company to company. I think a vast majority of reason that will pass on a business is not because there's a turnoff from the founder. I think it's really that, you know, we feel like uh, maybe there's there's more thought that needs to go into this before the company is ready to raise capital. I read your blog post about the importance of having a process for decision making and not just simply trusting your gut. When you're interviewing founders, how do you build that trust and make sure that they have their own diligent decision making process? rather than just simply trusting their gut? Well, it comes from a couple different ways. So one is, you know, when you're interviewing these founders and you're trying to understand, uh, is this the right person that you want to be invested in and working with for six, seven, eight years as, as part of an investment, right? Your, your involvement might lessen as they grow as a company, uh, but you're still going to be invested in them. You're still going to be partnered with them. Uh, I think it is understanding whether or not they're already doing the behaviors today that you would want from them in the future. So, you know, when it comes to decision making, uh, you know, you want to understand, do they keep a good record of their progress? So one example of that is sending regular investor updates. If this is somebody, if I, you know, talk to a founder and I'm like, can you show me the last six months of investor updates that you've shared as, as part of the diligence process? And they're like, yeah, I don't really regularly send investor updates. And they're like, well, we don't have investors right now. That's fine. You can still put together an update and share it with your mentors. You can share it with your team, whatever it is, right? But that says to me that from day one when we're invested, you don't have to learn a new behavior. You're already somebody that has transparency in how you operate. So, it is a little bit of a of a you know show don't tell mentality with me as I'm as I'm looking at a founder's decision making, and then the rest is really understanding their past behavior. So I'm a big believer in behavioral interviewing. I think when you ask somebody hypotheticals, um, they'll give you the best possible version of the answer. But I think when you're actually going to spend time in behavioral and, and tying every question back to a past example of something that they've done. Um, that's where I think the real value comes in. So uh, you're spending time with somebody to understand, are they um, self-aware and introspective? So you can ask them, you know, what is something that you believe that you changed your opinion on? And you can help understand uh, how they think. And, and they can give you a clear example of something that they've done. And so I, I've, you know, asked those questions. I've asked about how they handle conflict and collaboration. So I've talked about you know, uh, who are the best people that you've worked with in your career? And tell me about a time that you disagreed with them. And let's talk about that. Because inherently, in a board meeting or on an investor call, we might disagree on something. You might want to allocate capital in one way. And I might think, hey, that's maybe it's a little early to do that. Maybe we shouldn't go out and be spending marketing dollars until we've got the product ready. Whatever it is, I want to understand if we are people that can hear each other if we can, you know, sort of sort of understand where both perspectives are coming from. And the best way to learn that about a founder is to hear examples of when they've done that in this past, especially first time founders. I think when you're a repeat founder, some of this stuff um, I can infer from, you know, both doing uh, reference checks on you. If, if you've got sort of a track record, there's probably a good example of, of the fact that you have, you know, good decision making. But still, you, you want to confirm that as your dil- in your diligence process. For a first time founder, especially a founder that maybe not hasn't managed teams in the past, um, you know, you really want to dig into this stuff early on. So how do you feel about VCs 
saying, hey, we're willing to invest. Love the idea. We love you as a founder, but we want a lead investor. Yeah, that's not, you know, it's it's so tough because I think I'm the kind of person that doesn't like to build my conviction off of somebody else's conviction. Um, but I also know that realistically, given our check size and given where we invest, we can't lead every round. So there's a lot of times that, that we will get to conviction on a company, but not be able to invest because you know we wouldn't be the biggest check based on the round that you're raising. And so in those situations, we're very honest and we'll say, we're excited. We're you know basically ready for it, contingent on uh, the lead that comes in. I go into every diligence process with the assumption that I, I only want to do this if I can lead this round. That's my mentality. So I'm, lo- I'm looking at it as how, what would I need to know? What, what would I need to be confident and comfortable with to be able to be the investor of record, to be the board member in this round? Now, I may get there and then another lead comes in and then we end up being you know the second biggest check. I think out of the 10 seed deals that we did in 2018, um, nine out of 10, we were either the biggest or second biggest check. And so we may end up not being the biggest check. We may end up not being the lead, but I go into my diligence process with the assumption that we're going to lead. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a meme now with, with investors, you know, waiting to see who else is in the round. There's just also a lot of funds out there and different funds have different mandates. I think just because a fund um, isn't a lead fund, is a follow-only fund, doesn't mean that they don't add value. We have a lot of funds that we co-invest with um, that like investing with us and invest with us multiple times a year, uh, especially when we lead, right? And so uh, I don't think there's anything negative about those funds. That's just not how I invest. Um, and I think that founders should do their homework ahead of time and, and really see, hey, is this a fund that leads actively? Um, you know, like in New York, I think that last time I did the math, there's like 96 funds that seed invest, maybe only about 20 that actively lead. So, you know, when you're putting together your investor pipeline, you're putting together your funnel, uh, know who those 20 are. Uh, know who, uh, you know, maybe is below those 20, leads somewhat actively, but not always, and then understand at the bottom of the list, who are the guys that don't lead at all, then maybe you shouldn't go be spending too much time with right now. Because that almost becomes a negative signal when you have a lot of people that have uh, a little bit of conviction that, that maybe want to get in, but they're waiting for somebody else to, to decide their conviction. And that's just not how I like to operate. Flipping gears a little bit, how have investor attitudes changed over the past few years when it comes to D2C businesses? Yeah, it's actually a pretty crazy uh, transformation in, in the landscape over the last five years. Uh, a lot of these brands, you know, when I first started following and writing about them in, in 2015 and 2016, uh, a lot of these brands were built to be digitally native and they were built to be vertical. And so that meant that there was no storefront. Uh, it was, you know, either drop shipped or, or brought in from a third party logistics company. And then, uh, you know, it was all about building a really solid brand relationship with the person who was buying, uh, you know, the, the, the product. And then once you have acquired that customer, holding on to them as a customer for life. So really maximizing that lifetime value. That's changed a little bit over time. One is those barriers of entry, as you said, have come down, but also as the customer acquisition channels have changed. So whereas these companies were digitally native, they're no longer digitally native. Some of them start online, but very quickly move to having retail storefront. 
Uh, some of these companies were vertical, and the reason they were vertical is they they didn't want to share any uh, you know uh, share of wallet with another brand. Have now decided that okay, there's maybe specific use cases that they're right for, and have decided not to be vertical and maybe have gone out and given away some of that margin uh, to work with uh, you know folks that 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 uh, can help do packaging or can help do um, you know marketing for them. And what they've also realized is that you can now start a brand with not a lot of upfront investment and get to, you know, a few million dollars in revenue. But a few million dollars in revenue isn't enough to return a venture scale investment. And so I think the biggest thing that's changed in the industry is that we have all come to realize collectively and maybe around at the same time that D2C brands that raise a lot of money don't return. Uh, It's this sort of age old problem of you could have a $50 million business, but if you've raised $50 million, you're not really going to see a solid exit on that return. And so where, where I've sort of started to see my line is that if a D2C brand has raised more than $10 million and they're in an industry where there's really not a lot of strong exits, um, that's probably one where I'm going to say, hey, this is a really great business, but this is not a really great venture capital business. And as a result, you're starting to see actually new sources of capital come up around this very idea. Um, how do you still support the D2C innovation economy? How do you support these new brands, especially as these new brands are starting to serve uh, more and more niche audiences, but not do it with the same constraints as venture capital? Because uh, you can be realistic about the fact that those large exits and those large returns aren't there. Um, you know, We'll see as, as some of these D2C brands now start to go public or are acquired, um, there haven't been a lot of massive home runs in this space, but there has been a ton of capital that's been put in over the last five years. So my sense would be, uh, you know, as it comes to new D2C brands that are coming up, um, I'm probably going to be on the sideline. I'll, I'll, I'll step in here and there when I find something that is particularly intriguing or particularly unique. But if their game plan is to go raise more than $10 million of capital before getting to sort of a sizable scale, um, it might not end up being right for me because I don't think the math proves itself out. When it comes to consumer generally, is there a specific metric that's extremely insightful that you look for that other investors might gloss over? I think we talked about it a little bit earlier, but it's really about the problem that uh, you're solving. And one way to understand whether you're actually solving that problem is not to look at, let's say, total number of users, but it's to look at how engaged those users are. And so you might come to me with, let's say, 200,000 users, but they're not really active. Or you come to me with 20,000, and they love the product, and they can't wait to keep trying it. I think that avidity and engagement, you know, coming back to, to terms I used to use in my, in my sports world, right? That fan avidity is massive for your brand. And what that means is you're not going to have to spend a lot of money to acquire these customers or to retain them because they love the brand. Now, that might come from the brand. That might come from your customer service. That might come from the problem that you're solving or a combination of all three. But I think uh, the one that gets glossed over the most is probably usage and utilization. I think people are looking at those vanity metrics or looking at those top line numbers. But when you come back to, uh, you know, is this something that's going to have staying power? Well, having fans that are not fickle, having users that are avid, um, that ends up being a, a really strong indicator of, of a lasting company.
Do you have a book recommendation that has impacted the way you think about deals and about venture capital? Yeah, there's one. You know, I was just recommending to somebody last night. Uh, I read this book maybe seven or eight years ago, and it has totally changed my perspective on how I think about my day-to-day interactions um, in work and I think in life generally. So uh, it's by an author called Daniel Pink, and the name of the book is To Sell is Human. And uh, I, you know, I won't give the, uh, the the book away, but what I will say is, his principle is one out of nine people in America are in a direct selling role, right? They're selling a product, they're selling a car, they're they're selling software, whatever it is. Um, the other eight out of nine are also in a sales role. It's just not direct selling. So what that means is if you're convincing your boss to let you go on a uh, you know, personal development trip to a conference, or you are convincing somebody within your company that this is the right course of action to take uh, you know, over the next six months, you're convincing your board uh, to help you know, back you on an acquisition of a company, this is all sales. And so what I realized, and and I mentioned it earlier, right, the principle of good sales is asking good questions. But there are a lot of other principles of sales that people who aren't directly in sales can learn and can apply to everything they're doing. And so that becomes relevant when you're trying to sell somebody to join your company. And that becomes relevant when you're trying to sell somebody on your product, when you're trying to uh, convince someone uh, to, to take a preferred course of action or to follow you in a certain direction. If you can learn those aspects of sales, and and you know, in in one aspect of that is persuasion, but really beyond persuasion, it's uh, it's understanding what it takes to be a good salesperson, and then applying that to the rest of your life. So I think To Sell as Human is a book that I recommend to anybody at, at any age. What's one company that you either uh, invested invested in or work with that you're really proud of? Yeah, um, I'll give you two because I talked about Future Family a little bit earlier on, and, and I'll elaborate on them, uh, and I'll talk about another. Um, so I am, I'm so happy that we're invested in Future Family. I think the Com- the, the company as a whole is solving such an important problem, making IVF and fertility more accessible to people around the world. I think it touches on, on a broader thesis that I have around services that were once only available to the top 1% now being available to, to the rest of us. And, and that is, I think, just democratization of um, you know, mobile, uh, of, of digital media, of social media, allowing these things that were once just um, you know, behind walled gardens are now being available to the rest of us. So uh, I think I'm really excited about what Claire and the team is doing there. You know, they continue to uh, work with new clinics every time that I talk to them. They're growing like crazy, um, and they're bringing more and more families uh, into the future family, uh, you know, concierge service to help connect them with the right clinics to make sure that they're getting the care that they need, and then making sure that that care is affordable by providing them the plans that that they that they can afford. Because the other problem is, you know, people will um, go out and meet a clinic and, you know, get their testing done and then realize that they don't want to do it because it's cost prohibitive. We found that 95 percent or 90 to 95 percent of the reason that somebody goes into a clinic but doesn't get um, that that treatment is because uh, because of the cost. So if you can take that barrier away, then you can let people who. Um, you know, maybe have waited a little bit to have kids or wanted to make sure their finances were right before they, they chose family planning, you can you can provide that service to them. And as we look at the broader trend of 
more and more millennials waiting later and later to get married, to have kids, to start families. Um, I think this is going to be a service that needs to become much more, uh, you know, available to families and people everywhere. So I'm just I'm so excited about what they're building and continue to be uh, excited and supportive of them. Um, another one that's a little bit more local that, that I'm super uh, psyched about. I met these founders almost exactly a year ago, uh, and they were building uh, a company in urban transportation and mobility. So the company's called Revel, and they're an electric moped uh, based in Brooklyn and Queens, uh, and they're expanding out to many new cities over the next few months. Uh, you know, and, and I think when I met them, the challenge that they had was they had uh, launched a, you know, early beta basically with, I think, 60 or 70 mopeds across uh, a few neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And they were starting to see early traction, but a lot of investors, you know, couldn't build conviction around it because they said, oh, yeah, we looked at scooter companies or we did a scooter company or we don't think it's interesting. And I feel like not enough folks maybe sat down and really did the math, looked at the unit economics and they said, you know what? A moped is different than a scooter. A scooter is a toy. It's dangerous. People throw it up in the tree and they vandalize it. Um, you know, I dare you to take a 200-pound moped and try to do it with that, right? And the people, the people that are riding it, they wear a helmet every time they ride it because the helmets are provided with the moped. Uh, they use it for daily commutes when the L train or the, the G train is not trustworthy. And so there's all these different aspects that fed into why I very quickly built conviction around Rebel because I said, this is unlike, you know, and I had a thesis around micromobility, but, and I'd seen a bunch of scooter companies, but I said, this is unlike anything that I've seen. And so they continue to have a lot of success. They launched a thousand mopeds across Brooklyn and Queens uh, earlier this summer. And not a day goes by that I don't, you know, read a tweet about somebody just having an amazing experience with the wind in their face, obviously the helmet on, and getting from point A to point B faster than they could at a quarter of the price of taking an Uber and a Lyft, um, and just being able to, to see the city in a way uh, that they never had before. I've lived here eight years, and I can't tell you, I, I go out to Queens sometimes just to be able to, to ride a, a revel around Astoria. And so... Um, Revel is one that I continue to be excited about as they expand to new cities, and and uh, and I'm so happy to see that they're doing well. Those are both really impressive stories. So, what's what's one company that you felt like got away or uh, was a pass that you thought that you maybe should have invested? Yeah, there there was a company. You know, it's actually from before I became an investor, but this is probably the first company that I that I had like just so much enthusiasm and excitement for. And it, and it came back to a lot of the same things we've talked about today of, uh, you know, the founder market fit, the market being ripe for, for something new, uh, and, and then obviously the product being something really unique and exciting. And so uh, the company's called Overtime. And I think if, if any of your, uh, you know, listeners are uh, into sports and into youth sports, they'll know this company already. Uh, but, but Dan Porter and Zach Wiener, they started this company, I think, in 2015, and when I met them, uh, I was still, I think, you know, about to leave banking to go work for Techstars uh, or maybe around, somewhere in that time. And when I met them, it was still a digital publication. So you, had, you know, went online to, uh, to watch youth highlights uh, of, of a basketball uh, game or, or, you know, of, of any other sport that they had youth highlights for. 
But they very quickly, and I think, you know, in a sort of stroke of genius, realize that you have to meet your audience where they are. So you can't just be a destination the way that like ESPN is a destination. You take your content to Instagram, to Facebook, to Snapchat, to, to, to text messaging, to wherever people want to engage with this content. And so whether it's just a compilation of like dunks and, and, and like highlights of that, or if it's, um, you know, a, a really cool moment from a game, or, or if it's an interview with an athlete who's, you know, maybe coming off of uh, a monster record-making game, um, these are the, the guys that are going to go on to play at the professional level. And so uh, I think they did something really cool where they had like Kevin Durant watching highlights of guys who are in high school and, you know, commenting on their game. They're like, hey, this is somebody that I think has, you know, really, really great defense in the post. I think this is somebody, wow, he's got a, he's got a great, you know, three. And if he keeps working on that, I think I think he's going to be an awesome shooter in the NBA one day. And then they went back and they, they showed Kevin Durant's commentary to those uh, athletes. And, and, I mean, these guys lost it. They were, this is amazing for them. And so you saw just the pure joy that was created from this product, but you also saw the, the, the sort of genius business behind it. You know, Dan Porter coming out of WME, I think was formerly the, the founder of OMG Pop, which I knew from Draw Something, which is a game that I used to be obsessed with. And he had that founder market fit. He understood that media business. He understood how to create a product at a, at a, for consumers that, was so unique, uh, and then he brought somebody like Zach on, who you know was a young guy, was was hustling, was meeting you know athletes, was meeting people who would go and uh, and record these clips for them, and then put that together. And I think last I saw, they they raised a, a monster Series A from from Andreessen Horowitz, and I think they've gone on to raise some more capital after that. So that was probably the first company that I was like, holy crap! I wish I was an investor right now because I want to give them my money like right now. And, uh, and so that, that's one of the companies that always fuels me to say, whenever I feel like that, whenever I feel like that meeting a company, that's the feeling that tells me, okay, this is something I got to go after. Absolutely. Well, Jay, thanks so much for coming on and educating us more about venture capital and early stage investing in consumer. We really appreciate it. Of course, no. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, if uh, if your listeners want to learn more, um, the best place to find me, the best place to, to reach me is on Twitter. So I'm at Jay Kapoor NYC. That's J A Y K A P O O R N Y C. Um, and and they can DM me. Those are always open. Uh, if they're a founder building something, even if they're too early to raise capital, shoot me a note. I'm always happy to play around with a beta and offer you some feedback. Um, and then yeah, I look forward to to uh, connecting again sometime soon. And uh, if you ever uh, find new books, by the way, that are interesting to you, send them my way as well. So I'm always happy to read those. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It was an absolute pleasure having Jay, and I really appreciate him sharing his insights. Again, if you want to keep an update on Jay, you can catch him on Twitter at NYC. If you enjoyed the episode, we would really appreciate it if you'd write us a review as well. If you have a recommendation for a guest, a good question that you'd love to hear our guests answer, or currently working on a consumer startup, I would love to hear from you and make this as collaborative as possible. You can DM me on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, or Instagram, at Mike Gelb, or click the Get in Touch box on our website, theconsumervc.com. As always, thank you for listening.